0: We're, we're hard-pressed these days to find serious Calvinists running around um, because of the democratization of American Christianity. Uh, they're still out there. Go to a Presbyterian church in America, go to an Orthodox Presbyterian church or a Bible Presbyterian church or a Presbyterian church General Assembly, the list goes on and on uh, because they're the true Calvinists. Uh, they, you know, a lot of Presbyterians for a lot of reasons uh, have been heavily influenced by all of us on that Armenian side um, that free grace side of the equation um, what I said la- last night, I don't think I said it yesterday what I run across though in the church and I'm sure I'd run across it right here in this room is not a theological conviction, a theological philosophical conviction that that God's very limited regarding what God can do in you. Most of you are not arguing on that one. Because as soon as you say it that way, you know God's not limited in what God can do in you. Um, And you wouldn't argue that theologically. But psychologically, you just don't expect God to do much. I'm only human. You don't expect God to do much. If you want John Wesley's brain to explode, say, well, I'm only human. Well, he would say, you're right, but you're forgetting about God, grace, power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So um, we don't, I don't see people who theologically limit God's activity or work in our lives, but they do psychologically. Uh, I see Christians who psychologically, because um, they've been formed by something other than the Scripture and tradition, I see Christians psychologically who don't believe God can do much in them. They, don't, they certainly don't believe God can do much in society they they've long given up. We've not had a major revival in western Christianity since 1905. And there's lots of reasons for that. We don't expect it. We think hell society's going to hell in a handbasket. That's the way it's got to be. And God can't do anything about that. Well, that's just not I want to say not western, it's not Christian to have those kind of views that limit God. So uh, we go to our, now our Calvinist brothers used to anyway, would work hard to give all the justification they could to why, um, why God can't do much with us or this world. That's why, for instance, in the, in the history of the American <coughs> church, Nathan Hatch can tell you all about this. You know, we were right, for a long time, we were writing hymns like, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Onward, Christian soldiers. All of a sudden, by the late 1800s, we're writing hymns like, hold the fort. <laughs> There's a shift there. There's a shift there, theologically. You know. And a lot of us are convinced that the reason we don't see mighty works of God in the West, like we see mighty works of God in places like Africa and Asia, is because we Americans... We, we, don't, we don't factor God. We don't consider God. We don't factor God in to what's going on, whether it's us personally or, or, or society. Christians should factor God in, but we Methodist types certainly should because when we start talking about sanctifying grace and we start talking about how holy we can become, and I, we shouldn't say it that way even, how holy God can make us, uh, yeah, that's why we're in the strand that we can see God make Mother Teresa's. We can see God make St. Benedict's, St. Patrick's. We can see God make J- John Wesley. The man never slowed down. If you ever, go, and this is true, if you ever go to do a Wesley tour, I, I do Wesley C.S. Lewis tours occasionally. If you go to his home in London, it's an amazing place, it's just like he left. It. If you go to his home in London, the original church is in London, he has got in his home, and this is so John Wesley. In some ways, so Methodist. In, this, in one of his rooms, it's like a box covered with leather. It's about, it's a, it's a cube, it's square. It's probably about, what's that, two feet high, two feet wide, perfect square. If you ask, what is that? It is a box that has springs in it so that John Wesley could sit on it and kind of hop up and down while he's sitting on it, kind of imitate being on a horse. I mean, I think the man needed some medication, really. <laughs> but that was, that was the DNA that hit Methodist. He traveled 250,000 miles on horseback across the United Kingdom. And that's why he was doing his work up until his 90s. So some of that DNA is in us. But again, John Wesley said, it's not me. It's not me. God's doing this. Uh, and, and again, we need to recapture that uh, audacious optimism about what God can do, which is why this, I'm pushing this book by Kevin Watson. He, he has written this book, Try to Remind Methodists, of what is called, and you notice I give you a quotation there from another one of John Wesley's letters, a uh, letter to R.C. Brackenberry, and notice this is 1790, one year before John died, he wrote this guy, I'm sure in an answer to something he had written to John Wesley, he wrote this guy and said, this doctrine, this doctrine of entire sanctification, pure heart, perfect heart, second blessing, we got a lot, and I'm going to summarize all that in just a second. We got a lot of names for this stuff. Um, that's the doctrine he's referring to. He says, this doctrine is the grand depositum which God has lodged with the people called Methodist and for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. Because um, the trust clause exists originally to keep Calvinists from taking over our congregations. You're going to learn more about the trust clause tomorrow night. But Wesley just was aghast at, at, at forms of Christianity that were so negative and so pessimistic that God's hands were just tied as to what God could do in society or what God could do in a human heart. And that's why uh, he says we were raised up to remind the body of Christ that God can do far more than we can think or imagine. I'm quoting Paul, by the way. We, God can do far more than we can think or imagine. A lot of times we limit God by our lack of faith. We limit God by our lack of devotion. We limit God by our lack of vision. Um, but it's, God's not the, not the problem. It's us. So with saying that, let me, let me just kind of summarize what we mean by perfect love, entire sanctification. And again, we have talked about it over the years in both, in both the terms of a gradual process and crisis events or moments in our life. Um, United Methodist over the years, uh, mainline Methodists over the years have gotten to where we just emphasize the gradual stuff. Because we can understand that. Not, not much supernatural about that. Just gradual growth, little bit by little bit. And the Calvinists are, are with us on that one. But where we part company is we say, you know, we can't limit God by faith, not because of who we are, by faith we can have an experience where we take a major leap forward. In our, in our level of sanctification. We see that in the Bible, for instance, when Paul, I'm not giving you scripture, but probably one of the best places is at the end of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, um, as he's saying goodbye to the church at Thessalonica, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then as a good theologian, the next phrase, because you hear this, you say, Paul, sanctify me wholly, completely, so I can be blameless. Uh, My whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So the next verse from Paul is, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So that's one of the many places we find this doctrine of entire sanctification. Uh, You know, know, the idea that you can come to Christ, get your sins forgiven, get in heaven, but stay the same old devil that you've always been, really bothers us. That's why we believe that righteousness is both imparted and imputed. The new birth really is a change in the human being. Your heart changed when you came to Christ. So, what what is what is what is an option now for human beings, is um, in Christ is amazing. So, and we have used language over the years like entire sanctification, and particularly in the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, we established the camp meeting for the promotion of holiness. In the 1867, after Civil War, because we needed more holiness. So we, we, we really, in the 1800s, we started talking more about those significant crisis experiences of sanctification. And start talking less about the gradual growth. Now, again, Wesley, Wesley was balanced. He did both. We should do both. Yeah, growth comes gradually. But, who knows? You know, we may be singing a hymn, um, I surrender all, and you actually surrender all. And that, that's what we mean by entire sanctification. Uh, you, you may be singing the hymn, I lay my all on the altar, and you might really do that. You may take a, a jump forward, a leap forward in your sanctification. Sanctification is just growth and holiness. You can take a leap forward. Um, that's why we wrote all those hymns. You know, about I surrender all and lay, I lay my all on the altar. And Go look at some of our hymns. Pick the hymns that come out of the 1800s that we love to sing. It talks about this stuff. That, that the Holy Spirit can just engulf our hearts. Now, particularly in the 1800s, we come to understand, um, you know, God could do it all at one time. Bring you to Christ, cleanse your heart. And that's the language we use, cleansing of your heart. You can come to Christ, have your heart cleansed most of us because of our sin it takes it's a little more it's it's a little more of a process than that yeah you you give your sins to jesus you accept him as savior but then you have to kind of let the spirit work on you till you really start understanding that you need to receive him as lord also not just savior but lord also and that's why particularly methodist um There was that second crisis experience, that second altar experience, where you laid your sacrifice on the altar and the fire of God would sanctify it. This is all language from our hymns and our heritage. Uh, I remember when I went to my first Methodist church, uh, and I I, I walked in not as a Methodist, that was the church I joined when I was in Charlotte. I, I served there as a Duke intern the whole summer. And then on the last Sunday, I um, took my vows of membership to the United Methodist Church and walked around and preached a sermon from the pulpit. It's terrible. I told them everything they ever wanted to know and more than they ever wanted to know about being Methodist in one sermon. Um, But I did that. I was 22 years old. But I remember when I went to that church, there was a lady, and this was a rural Methodist church. There was a lady in that church, her father was an old-fashioned Methodist preacher. He just died in recent years. Old-fashioned Methodist preacher. And I remember going to that um, church, and again, I grew up on this side of the family equation, remember? Well, I went to that church, and I cannot remember her name. I used to never forget names. This goes back to 1983, 1984. But I remember going, I can see her. I walked in there, and getting, you know, when you're a Duke intern, you're so green, you know so little, and you're sort of grateful... And not for all the people that are trying to train you that summer. They're trying to teach. They they know we don't know anything about pastoring a church, and they're, they're helping us anyway. This lady's trying to help me out theologically. She walked up to me on a Sunday morning for worship and said, "Um, have you received the second blessing?" And I'm like, I "Don't know what you're talking about, lady." Um, my culture I grew up in, we didn't talk about second blessings or third blessings or first blessings. The best we could do was give our sins to Jesus. And we just kind of stopped at that point. Um, she was an old-fashioned Methodist, um, particularly from, when I say old-fashioned Methodists from the 1800s, early 1900s. So she knew about second blessing. She knew about the event of entire sanctification. She knew about uh, the event of receiving a perfect heart. She knew about the event of having your heart purified by God's love and grace. Um, So now let me say a little bit more about what that is when that happens. And by the way, it's because we created this sort of, doesn't have to be, but we've created this sort of two-stage initiation into the Christian faith. You with me? You come to Christ, you give Him your sins, you start learning He's Savior, you start learning He did some things for you that you can't do for yourself. But for most of us, you have to then grow to realize, I've got to give Him my pocketbook, I've got to give Him the way I raise my children, I've got to give Him my entertainment, I've got to give Him my weekends. So you have to kind of grow into that lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, so most, that's why a lot of times it is a crisis event. When you, and so for, actually, what I see happening, for those of you that know the Walk to Emmaus, which has been around since 1946, uh, is a special three-day weekend retreat created by Catholics, but we Methodists use it, and everybody else uses it now. Part of what and it is, it is a, the, the, the mission of Walk to Emmaus is to create Christian leaders. We always say, don't send me people that are you know, joy-filled pagans. That's not Walk to Emmaus. Send me Christians... And then, news over the course of the weekend, something happens to a lot of them. It's like they have an epiphany, an aha moment. They feel something. We met this like feeling stuff. They feel something. Again, they won't use the term second blessing, entire sanctification, um, receiving a pure, perfect heart, being cleansed, our hearts being cleansed of sin. They won't use that language. That's not kind of 1800 language. But um, I think that's what happens a lot of times. That's why these Christians take a jump forward in their faith. Uh, Not always. Some people go, walk to a mess, and come back more of a devil than they went. But for other people, it can be a significant experience. Anyway, so that's why, particularly in the Methodist tradition, if we say, is this growth a gradual thing, or is it an event crisis experience? And by crisis, I don't mean bad stuff. I just mean cataclysmic. Big time experience in your life. And again, the, the real me- Methodist answer is what to that? Yes, both. Both. Because again, let God, let God have freedom in your life. Don't give God... you know, that, That's why God will never tell you what God wants you to do until you answer yes. You answer yes, then God might let you know what the question is. Now most of us, we want to hear the question. And then we'll take it on deliberation Mm -hmm. as to whether or not we want to say yes. We've got to give our yes to God first. Uh, If you took Disciple Bible study, my favorite line from the manual toward the end of Disciple 1, God does not reveal God's will to the curious. God reveals God's will to the obedient. So if you want to know what God wants for you, you've got to go, go ahead and get the yes out of the way. And then, then, then you'll grow in, in faith. But don't set these limitations on God. Now, in saying that, and this is part of what, part of what um, Watson did, this is part of what Nick did yesterday. So when we talk about heart holiness, and that's what we talk about, heart holiness, when we talk about heart holiness, it's clear, you need to know what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. A perfect heart is not uh, free from ignorance. A perfect heart doesn't mean you all know all things. You know, sometimes I hear Christians speak almost as if, you know, when they get to heaven, they're going to know all things. Only God is omnipotent. We aren't. So you can have a perfect heart and not know all things. You can have a perfect heart and not be free from mistakes. You can have a perfect heart. Now, this is what people had a hard time understanding. You can have a perfect heart. And not be completely free from sin. That's why when Wesley preached perfection, a perfect heart, he had to say over and over, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Um, Which again, that's part of what Nick was saying yesterday. What we mean by perfect, if it helps you translate that mature or complete. You know, like again, if this is a perfect newborn baby in my arms. I don't mean, I still know it's a sinful creature, but I'm saying that baby is where that baby, your, your doctor is saying that baby is where that, doc- that baby needs to be right now. Now, if that 21-year-old is still acting like that newborn, there's a problem. Now, you know, and you need to be 21 years old, your doctor can look at you and say I've done the physical, I've done. you're a perfect 21-year-old. And that's sort of what we mean by perfection. You just need to be at where you need to be at. And that doesn't mean you're going to know everything. That doesn't mean you're going to be free from imperfections. Let me give you my, my classic favorite example of what Methodists mean by perfect heart. And, um, and this may be so new to you. You need to start doing the, the way um, um, Watson kind of ends up his book. on Because he has a chapter in here, how to receive entire sanctification today. He ends up with a prayer, a short one. I like short prayers. Uh, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctify me entirely for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Pray it. Expect God to do something. And now I'll give you an illustration of what I think a perfect heart looks like. Because again, this is such foreign language for the last 75 years among people called Methodists. This illustration comes from, some of you may have heard me use this before, because this is my favorite illustration of what we, what we talk about that we need to be striving for. Uh, Any of you in the room remember an old Methodist evangelist? He lived over here in the Ardmore section of Um, Winston-Salem. He died in 1970. His name was John R. Church. Probably not. There was a family in Thomasville whose last name just slipped my memory, who uh, for a long time owned a Christian bookstore in Thomasville, and they just... They themselves just published a lot of John Church's sermons and pamphlets. And John, our church, was an old-fashioned, old-fashioned Methodist holiness preacher. By the way, the holiness churches came out of us because we, they said we were forgetting this. That's why all your holiness churches, Nazarene, free Methodist, uh, West Ends came out in 1850s over slavery, but free Methodists, Nazarenes, uh, 1890s, turn of the century. Because by that point, we Methodists were getting so sophisticated, we, we'd forgotten all this stuff. That's why the holiness started. But we were the holiness preachers. We were the original holiness preachers. John R. Church was, one, was a preacher in that, mo, in that mo, mode. Uh, I remember the old-timers annual conference talking about John R. W., John R. Church would preach at annual conference. Again, he died in 1970. He would preach at annual conference, and the spirit would fall on the group of 2,000 preachers and laity in Auditorium. I'm not sure what it would look like for the Spirit to fall at annual conference. John Church used to make it happen, or, or the Holy Spirit used John Church to allow it to happen. But he, one of his examples of heart holiness that we need to strive for is this. John had a son that was, um, we would probably say today, developmentally disabled. Pretty severely d- developmentally disabled. Um, they used different terms back in those days. And um, sweet kid, like a lot of people who struggle with this, sweet kid, great kid. Uh, Certain purity, I'm getting towards some Methodist language now, certain purity in that child. Anyway, um, uh, John R. Church went away and preached revival mission, he was always on the road preaching. And um, one week he was somewhere doing a preaching mission, and his son, this son, who was like, 20 by this point. This son knew that dad had some shrubs that needed to be trimmed. Well, he was gonna help dad out because he loved his dad so much. He was gonna help dad out and trim those shrubs while Dad was away on that preaching mission. John came back home. Those shrubs were well, shrubs that he didn't want trimmed were trimmed. They all were trimmed down to nubs. Now, so the illustration of a pure heart was was that young man's heart right with his dad. Yeah. He was desperately trying to love his dad. His heart was right. His heart was focused. He wanted to do, he wanted to do what his dad wanted. But because of his, because of his infirmities, his ignorance, he didn't do it perfectly, but we would still say that child's heart was perfect toward his dad at that point. So we can be in a relationship with God that, that, that is better than what we think it is. Um, we, we, can, we, can, we can give our hearts, this is Methodist language, we can give our hearts to God. And we, and we mean what that means. Uh, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So that's, that's what we mean by entire sanctification. The language is not good. But yes, a lot of people got in the door, they gave their sins to Jesus, and they became church members. That's as far as they made it. I remember being over here at the old John Wesley camp meeting a long time ago. Does this still happen, by the way? Still happens. This was probably back in the 80s. I was preaching John Wesley camp meeting. And I remember uh, when when we did an altar call, and we Methodists invented the altar calls back in the 1830s. Uh, they're not sacred. Jesus didn't start them. He didn't know what they were. But they're they're good. There's lots of ways to respond to the word. But particularly in a camp meeting setting, an altar call is a good way to respond to the word. I was preaching at John Wesley Camp Meeting and uh, issued an altar call, and this old old gentleman. He was. This was 1980s. He was probably in his 80s. So he would have been of John R. Church's generation. As people started coming, and I'll never forget this, as people started coming toward the altar to pray, he had just looked back at the congregation and in a loud voice said, let's start a new crop for holiness. You know, I mean, for some reason, even Methodist people over the years, we just got to where we didn't expect much holiness. You know, if we could just keep from killing each other, that's a good day. Yeah. Yeah, but but expect holiness. You know, one of the things I learned, one of the things I've noticed in my transition, and I've still got a foot in both worlds, my transition from Roman Catholic um, to, to United Methodist or to embracing all sorts of Protestantism, is is interesting. Language language is interesting. In Catholic settings, you frequently hear a Catholic say, "He is a." He is a particularly holy priest. We don't even like to use the word holy because we have all sorts of images of self-righteousness and stuff. We don't even like the word holy. One of my prayers that I pray every morning, I've got a a prayer journal that has a lot in there that I pray every morning, but one of my basic prayers is God grant me health and holiness. I, I dare say most Christians pray more for health than holiness. Uh, we can be a whole lot more like Jesus. I mean, we've seen stuff like, make me, uh, make, make me more like the master. Uh, we can be more like Jesus than we realize. But again, it's not us, it's, it's grace. That's what we mean by entire sanctification. And because we kind of emphasize that it could be a crisis event, that's where the holiness, because they really emphasize the crisis event. Sometimes we emphasize gradual growth. It needs to be both. Um, But they started leaving us because they said we were not being true holiness preachers. They started leaving us. Um, It really can be both, should be both. That's why he's trying to reintroduce, he's United Methodist, he's trying to reintroduce this doctrine that John Wesley said was the reason God raised us up for the body of Christ. He's trying to reintroduce the Methodist. Um, But that's probably... That's probably some foreign, some of that anyway, some foreign language to you. You probably, you probably remember remnants of it, you know, give your heart to Jesus. Um, um, when I say give your heart to Jesus, I'm not just saying give your sins to Jesus. I'm saying something beyond give your sins to Jesus. Uh, it's great to start with giving your sins to Jesus. but When I say give your heart to Jesus, you, you need to work, you need to pray for a heart like John R. Church's son had. It, there was a purity there. There was a focus there. It's, it's, about, it's about motivation. It's about... Um, You know, one thing that surprises me in church work, well, it doesn't surprise me. The depths of it surprises me sometimes, because I know how human sinfulness is. You know, C.S. Lewis, who was a good Anglican, talked about the intolerable compliment of God toward us. The intolerable compliment is, yeah, you give your sins to Jesus and tell Jesus to come on in, God will bug you and bother you for the rest of your life till you grow, to keep you growing in holiness. That's the intolerable compliment. God loves you so much, He's not going to let you rest. God loves you so much, He's going to keep pushing and prodding, pushing you on to perfection. But what I don't understand sometimes in the life of the Christian community, you know, I'm grateful for God's intolerable compliment in my life. I'm grateful for the way He bugs me and bothers me, prunes me, John 15. I'm grateful for all that. And part of that is is when I do something really unchristian, and sometimes I just will joyfully do something unchristian if you make me mad enough. But, But I know it. I know what I'm doing. The Spirit will torment me. The Spirit will trouble me. I will probably lose a night's sleep. I'll probably have to work my way back to an apology. But I run across people who profess the name of Christ, they can act like the devil, and they don't even know they're not spoke to act that way. Um, yeah, we can do better with holiness uh, than, than we expect. Um, you know, that's why, I'm, remember, I'm sure you don't, transactional analysis. That was a big um, uh, uh, therapy movement in the 70s. Remember the title of their popular book? I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah. I saw that as a young child, not that young, but teenager. I said, no, I'm not okay, you're not okay, but God can make us okay. That's a big difference from saying, I'm okay, you're okay. And again, watch the language. Language usually, you know, um, out, Jesus said, out of the heart we speak. Sometimes what we say betrays. You know, like when, I, when, I, you, know, when, I, when you say, well, I'm only human, you might as well join what was his name? Flip Wilson and say the devil made me do it. I mean, in in, in Christian theology, those are at the same level. I'm only human, the devil made me do it. Yeah, we we Methodists, you know, I hope you are not just totally startled to know that we Methodists expect a little more out of each other. This. Um, Anyway, so that's, that's, that's entire sanctification. I gave you the quote. The two sermons are in the back of this book. If not, Google them. You'll get many, many forms of these sermons uh, on the Internet. But Christian perfection, you know what he means by perfection. You just need to be where you need to be at this point in your life. Um, and then I put John Croft Sell down here to finish my theology up with this. Um, John Croft Sell wrote a book in 1935. He's a great scholar. He wrote a book in 1935 called The Rediscovery of John Wesley. So that tells you something about 1935. Remember I told you the most non-Wesleyan hymnal we ever produced was what year? 1935. That was the year we said n- no to "Old for a thousand tongues because you know we wanted to be like everybody else. And that was the year, that's the only time in the hymnal we made number one hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Because that was number one for everybody else. I love Holy, Holy, Holy by the way, but it's I love Old for a Thousand Tongues more, um, because Old for a Thousand Tongues says he breaks the power, the dominion of canceled sin. Uh, your Calvinist friends can't sing that. They know he, he cancels sin, but they're not sure about how much power and dominion of sin in your life he can break. We're optimistic. Anyway, 1935, when John Crofts' sale wrote that book, The Rediscovery of John Wesley, obviously a lot of Methodists had lost old Mr. Wesley in a lot of ways. And that book, The Rediscovery of John Wesley, did help a new generation begin to do Wesley studies, begin to pay attention to our heritage, begin to pay attention to why God raised up the people called Methodists. I was fortunate that when I started Duke Divinity School in 1983, we received a new dean that year, Dennis Campbell, uh, whose Ph.D. from Yale was in Wesleyan studies. So, I was there at a time when Wesleyan studies was, was a big deal. We paid attention to our heritage. But John Croftsell, 35, wrote that book, The Rediscovery of John Wesley, because most Methodists have forgot who he was. They forgot his heritage. They forgot what he bequeathed to us. They forgot how the Holy Spirit used him. And one of the things he says in that book, and it's been debated over the years, and, it, and, and because it's simplistic, it's a generalization. And all generalizations f- fail at some point. But he says in that book, and here, here's, here's something you can memorize, because I think, I think it's basically true. I think it's basically true. He says in that book that in regards to justification, you know, how you are saved, being saved, what that means, how to be born again, etc., etc. In regards to justification, we are very Protestant. Uh, in regards to sanctification, we're very Roman Catholic. Um, now, it does this was written in the '30s, so they didn't quite understand in the '30s. Roman Catholics also believe you're you're, you're justified the same way we say you are. We've worked on that as Catholics and Protestants uh, in the last fifty years. But just we all say is by faith, but in the '30s. Catholics didn't know who the Protestants were, and Protestants didn't talk to any Catholics. And Protestants thought Catholics uh, believe that you are, you are saved uh, by what you do. Um, what well, Catholics don't teach that. But it helps. When, when you talk justification, we can quote Luther and Calvin right and left. No problem. Now, when we talk sanctification, we've got to get as a Catholic scholar. They can help you become a Mother Teresa. Because Luther and Calvin don't help us much up there. Because Luther and Calvin are so much into sin, they weren't sure you could make much progress. But in this world, we believe you make a Mother Teresa. Now, we don't do what the Catholics do. We don't say, well, well Patty, you have done it. We're going to name you St. Patty. You know, we don't do that in the gospel but But with the same sort of theology. We all can progress. We all can... Uh, keeps going on to perfection. We all can have a heart that's right with God that causes us to go on to perfection. Um, so that's what we mean by perfect love. That's the distinctive part of Methodism. Um, which is interesting because there have been a lot of studies done where you know you go ask people on the street, what do you think of when you hear the word Methodist? Last time that was done, people just thought generic Mild, middle of the road Protestant. Now, isn't that exciting? <laughs> um, yeah, we're not just mild, generic, middle of the road Protestant. Some people, by the way, do think, some people think that what grace is, and I hear this from some Methodist preachers, they think what grace is is just God letting you off the hook. We need to be gracious to each other when you let each other off the hook. That's not grace. Or that's what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Again, what's grace? God's empowering presence. Working transformation in your life. So we, what we mean, what the church means in general by grace is not just God letting you off the hook. So you're called to be a gracious person. Grace, grace is not the same thing as kindness. I hope we're kind to people. But grace is something very specific in the Christian community. So grace is not just letting people off the hook, And that's the image people have of Methodists. You know. Because there's people, and I've, I've encountered this, they all, if, if, they, if, they don't, if they know no quotation from John Wesley, and he said a lot of good stuff, if they know, you can go to go Google the top 10 Wesley quotations. Um, if, if they, some Methodists, including preachers out there, they know no Methodist quotation from John Wesley except... He did say in a letter to, to a Roman Catholic, now you have to keep that in mind, he said, and this was 18th century, so just the fact he was communicating with that Catholic, well, it was a big deal. He, in a letter to a Roman Catholic, he said, think and let think. If your heart be like my heart, give me your hand. That's a good quotation. Think and let think. If your heart be like my heart, give me your hand. But keep in mind, that's also the same man who said, we're going to have a trust clause to make sure Calvinists can't take over our churches. <laughs> so, you know, he's talking to a Catholic. He's showing kindness to a Catholic. You know, I hear Methodists who will quote that one verse. That's all they know from, from Wesley's canon. Um, Th- think and let think. You know, if your heart be like my heart, give me your hand. They'll, they'll quote that to, to justify cannibalism if you want them to. Um, that's, you know... That's where you can take stuff out of context and get really dangerous. Um, Wesley did make a distinction, like a lot of people in history, like St. Augustine. There's a difference between opinions and essentials. Wesley did say, in in regards to opinions, how do you take communion? Kneeling, standing, sitting in the pew, coming forward, bread, bread grape juice, welches, wine, Uh, do you baptize by immersion, do you baptize by sprinkling, Uh, do you fast on Wednesday and Friday? He would categorize all those as opinions. Just kind of how we do stuff. Now, he knew what essentials were, though. he definitely know what the essentials were. He would throw the Apostles' Creed in there and throw this preaching of grace in that category of, of essentials. When he says something like, if your heart be like my heart, give me your hand, think and let think. He's talking about opinions. He really couldn't care less if you received communion on your knees or standing or sitting on your rear end. He really couldn't care less. Um, that's why he, we have a bit, actually a fancier word for that. We call that adiaphora in the Latin. The, the stuff that's not critical. On the stuff that's not critical, think and let think. But that you can't throw everything in that category. Um, That's why a a quotation for the Moravians that they borrow, we think this goes back to St. Augustine, but it's a great, great quotation. In essentials, unity. In opinion or non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. But yeah, we would have never said concerning essentials. Well, think and let think. If you, are, if you are a loving, gentle person, then give me your hand. Wesley's brain would have exploded. You heard him talking. I mean, that was Wesley's personality. The Methodist conferences in Wesley's day was the preachers came and listened to Mr. Wesley. That was it. You know, we didn't let laity participate in our conferences till 1939. Aren't you glad? Now all of our conferences are half laity, half um, clergy. We're, we're democratic now. But, you know, there's nothing democratic about early Methodism. Uh, John would tell us what to do, and if, if, we, if we didn't like what he said, he'd say, well, you don't have to be Methodist. Kind of like being a Marine. So with that, that kind of finishes the theology. Um, and what we have to offer the body of Christ is sanctification, how to grow in grace? I used to always say jokingly to people, yeah, if you want to, if you want to come to know Jesus, go to a Baptist church. But if you want to grow up in Christ, come to a Methodist church. And that sort of was my experience. Every Sunday morning in the Baptist church I grew up in, it was getting people saved. You know, I was not given a lot about how to get the hell out of me and, and replace it with the Spirit of the living God. It, it needs to be both. That's why, you know, I got Methodist who, you know, they think the word saved is a Baptist word. No, it's ours too. I've got Methodists, by the way, who, who who wouldn't know John Calvin if you walked in that door right there, but they'll call anything they dislike Calvinism. And I say, well, how's that Calvinism? Because it's very specific what we disagree with on Calvinists. Um, so with that, okay. well, yes? I have just one mm-hmm. quick thing that Please. sort of bothered me when, you know... Um, there's been a wreck and they quote somebody and they say, well, By the grace of God I was saved. But the, the other person in the car died. Yeah. yeah. And then so are they are they using that incorrectly? Do they not know what grace is? It is it's, it's what we do always do a lot of times. They're not thinking it through completely. Um God might have been the the most loving, kind, gracious thing God might could have done at that point was to take taken their life. Look at the covenant prayer, which I totally forgot today. Yeah, so keep that in mind, what Laney just said. Um, and, and lay that on top of the covenant prayer. Pr- pray the covenant prayer with me. I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing put me to suffering let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee exalted for thee or brought low for thee let me be full let me be empty let me have all things let me have nothing i freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal and now o glorious and blessed god father son and holy spirit thou art mine and i am thine so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. So the person who says, by the grace of God or the love of God, or the angels chasing me around what I will say, They're not reflecting. What they should say, well what the, one debate the background of that statement is living in this world is better than dying in one to the next. I'm going to that one. The one who died might be the more blessed one in that situation. You know, at that point, and I know I, I, I overthink everything. That's I thought my way into Methodism. But I, I would say just th- thank you, God. I'm glad that I get a few more years in life. Quote the Apostle Paul for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I went into that wreck in a win-win situation. It was not a win-lose situation for me when I went into um, again, this is getting at that heart being right with God. Um, so people just need to reflect on what they say. Sometimes, yeah, you know, people. I wish everybody would think seriously. I wish everybody would think as seriously about their faith as you do being in this room today. A lot of people don't think very seriously about their faith, and that's fine till till they become a terrible witness for the Christian faith. And I hear Christians saying stuff. You know, in public on television, and when they said, "I want to say, please," they're not on my team. They're not helping us. It was And sometimes they just say what they say. But yeah, there's um. Yeah, John Wesley would say um. For me to survive the wreck or to die in the wreck, is Christ either way. One gives me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a win-win situation. Um. John Wesley, if you would hear that, you would put it in the same category as the whining this person was doing. About why I can't come down because I'm tired of it. You know, Wesley would say, just find the joy, find the power of the Spirit, and go do what God's calling you to do. And, um, yeah, you need to be kind of careful. Yeah, because, you know, I I know my, my friend that got killed in the bicycle wreck last week, um, he was a cyclist. He lost control going downhill, ran into a transfer truck. I'm sure I know Claude well enough. His, he is fine. He is okay. He's, pro- he's probably much more concerned about the person who's driving that transfer truck. And he's concerned about his family. But, yeah, he, you know I, I don't think he would have ever said, if he survived that, he would have never said, well, I'm glad God did this. I mean, whatever. God is still God regardless of the outcome. You know, God's not, we, we have this commercial relationship with God, which is when this covenant prayer makes you feel odd, it's because you have a commercial relationship with God. We want to do this, and God gives us this good stuff in return. You know, it's hard to pray, um, uh, let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing, let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. You have to have a heart that's right with God to do that, to pray that. Um, and we believe you can get there. We believe you can get there. Um, any other questions about the theology bit? And we're going to do some quick history. And... That perfect love, mm-hmm. you've given an illustration of holding that perfect infant. Mm-hmm. Not all infants are perfect, mm-hmm. but our love for them mm-hmm. can be perfect. And that's kind of God's perspective. Um, and maybe our. Thinking in the definition of perfect is keeping us from understanding. It is. We use the itself. word. Yeah, we use I mean, the word. differently. perfect is you don't have a run in your stocking or yeah. But you know, this is so far removed from that. Yeah, because I'm sure. I mean, when when if the pediatrician says you have a perfect baby, I'd probably be the one to say, "Well, he's still a little sinful, sinful creature. It needs Jesus, and he doesn't cry because his brother's diaper needs changing." But what we mean is that baby is where that baby needs to be um, from the baby's perspective. Um, But yeah, there's uh, part of what we believe firmly about God across the board is there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than God loves you right now. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than God loves you right now. God's love is perfect, complete, unconditional, and that's why sometimes in, in, in this side of the family, we get a little neurotic, and we start feeling like we're doing stuff to earn brownie points. That's not why we do it. Um, some people do it for those reasons. That's not why we do it. We don't do it to earn brownie points. Um, you know, when... when, when um, let me think of an, an illustration. When... Um, i trying to think of something I do. When I change light bulbs... My wife, we would be in complete darkness in the whole house before she'd ever change a light bulb. She has relegated the changing of light bulbs to me, and it's because I'm petty about the wattage. But anyway, she's relegated the changing of light bulbs to me. I do. I joyfully change light bulbs. Sometimes I get in. A mood, I just get in a mood to change light bulbs. Um, I, I want a different wattage. I want, a de- I want white as opposed to gold and yellow. Anyway, she, light bulb changing is, is what Tammy's relegated to me. Now, I, why do I do it? I don't do it to make her love me. I don't do it to get her to love me more. I do it because I love her. I love her, so therefore I do this. There have been times I wonder just how dark would she let it get. But I don't play that game with her. I just changed the light bulbs, um, except the few that I just absolutely, even on a chair, can't reach. Then my taller wife reaches them for me. Uh, but yeah, we don't do what we do to to change God or to, I mean, there's nothing we can ever do to make God love us more or love us less than God loves us right now. And but when we know that, what that should make us want to give our whole hearts to God. Our whole lives to God. Every moment of our life should be gratitude to God. Um, and we believe that we can do better than, in that regard um, as West fans. Well, let's take a few minutes to do some quick history. And I, I really just want to do the history in regards to um, helping you know some of our terms. Um, you know all about John, Charles Wesley, John the preacher, Charles the hymn writer. Uh, I gave you two of my favorite quotations there for a very particular reason. This is under our Methodist beginnings, Roman numeral three. Uh, I love that it, his, he, he printed all of his sermons. He would yank out illustrations, by the way, and print all of his sermons. And that's why when you look at a sermon by Wesley, it looks like half scripture, which it is. It's, it's heavy in scripture. Um, when he actually preached it, because he had preached for two hours, he would throw in illustrations and the scripture and other stuff. But when he printed it, and he printed it for the sake of educating the Methodist preachers. Because you didn't have to be ordained to be a Methodist preacher. You, have, you could be a lay person to be a Methodist preacher. So we tried to train you however we could. But in, in the preface to sermons on several occasions, um, the, we, have, uh, we have a collection of 43 sermons that we we, we, we see as very important, very significant. Um, Anyway, in the preface to that collection of sermons, um, he says this in the front of the preface. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book, Mr. Wesley says. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be homo unius libri. That's Latin for man of one book. Now, obviously, he was a prolific reader, writer. He, he abridged a whole series of Christian works. He abridged them, took out what he didn't like, abridged them in order to make them available to Methodist people. He was an Oxford scholar. That's where he got his pay from. He was an Oxford scholar, warm-hearted, evangelist preacher. Um, he, he, he was brilliant. But at the end of the day, he says, I'm a, I am a homo unius libri. I know hundreds and thousands of books. He's a brilliant man. Um, he, obviously, too, he knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew. He used the Greek New Testament for his devotions. But he he says, though, don't ever forget the Bible is primary. Let me be people of one book. Um, Methodists need to remember that, too. Um, We were clear on that for a long time. And then another quotation, because it has a unique reference to Wesley Memorial Church, is from a letter to Alexander Mather. John Wesley said, and you you feel this sort of practical, pragmatic, proactive spirit in Methodism here. John Wesley said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw, whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell instead of the kingdom of heaven on earth." How do you hear that passage in the life of Wesley Memorial Church? You ever heard the Wesley 100? That's our men's group. I mean, I, and I was foolish enough, first time I showed up at a Wesley 100 meeting, I walked in the room and I thought, this looks like the Wesley <laughs> <laughs> and 25. And at least one of the gentlemen in the room explained to me, we are called the Wesley 100, not because of our number, but because of this quotation. For Wes has given me 100 people, yeah, they know they're not 100 men in any of the meetings, but they call themselves the West. They want to be those kind of people um, who, who desire nothing but God, who fear nothing but sin. They want to be that kind of people. So I gave you that quotation from Wessa. So uh, you can impress some of the members of the West of 100 by telling them you know where it comes from. Um, in the back of this book, if you do have it, uh, but you can Google it, it's all over the internet. If you look at the rules of banned societies, we were sort of rigorous in regards to um, doing the right thing. And these general rules, we we used to mandate, because we Methodists don't mind passing rules too, we used to mandate these be read annually in our churches. That stopped before I came in the ministry. But for instance, let me read you a little bit of them and you'll see why. Um, just I just jump in first, by doing no harm, by avoiding evil of every kind. Well, let me give you this rest of it. it is therefore expected of all who continue here that they should continue to evidence their desire for salvation, full salvation. First, by doing no harm, by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced, such as the taking of the name of God in vain, the profaning of the day of the Lord, either by doing ordinary work therein, or by buying or selling. Drunkenness, buying or selling spirituous liquors, or drinking them, unless in cases of extreme necessity. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of methods have a real loose definition of extreme necessity. (laughs) Slaveholding. When the American Methodist got started in 1784, our first book of discipline said, you cannot be a Methodist and hold slaves. That lasted one year in the American culture. But in England, uh, which was still a slave-holding nation in Wesley's day, the last letter Mr. Wesley wrote before he died was to William Wilberforce in England. You may have seen the movie Amazing Grace. Um, he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce saying, keep up the fight to destroy the institution of slavery. So yeah, he was real opposed to that. But as he lists here, things we have to not do, fighting, quarreling, brawling, brother going to law with brother, returning evil for evil, or railing for railing, the using of many words in buying or selling, the buying or selling of goods that have not paid the duty. They had a real problem with smugglers. If you watch PBS series Dark*, you know that. In 18th century England, a real problem with smugglers. The giving or taking things on usury, which he does define as unlawful interest, uncharitable, unprofitable conversation, particularly speaking evil of magistrates or of ministers. I always like that one. <laughs> Doing to others as we, would not they, as we would not they should do unto us. Doing what we know is not for the glory of God. The putting on of gold the putting on of gold and costly apparel, as I'm wearing this gold ring from Methodist Duke University. We forget things. The, the taking such diversions as cannot be used in the name of the Lord Jesus, the singing, the singing those songs or reading those books which do not tend to the knowledge or love of God, Loft softness or needless self-indulgence, laying up treasure upon earth. He goes on. And that's what we said. Again, you don't have to be a Methodist, but if you join the, it's like joining the Marines, there's some expectations of you. Uh, Wesley was very clear on that. Anyway, that, those are the, um, that's, those are what we call the general rules. Those are the general rules. Also in the back, you do have the rules for the band societies. I, I would be thrilled if some people would come out of this week and make, a, make bands. You can call them anything you want to call them. You can call them your support group if you want to. You can call them a journey group. You can call them a unity group. We have all of those. But find you two or three people, Wes has said a maximum of five, a group of five that you can meet together on a regular basis. Um, He gives you the questions to ask if they're a little too tough for you. Um, Walk to mess does the same thing with reunion groups. They give you three questions like, where have I seen God this week, where have I failed to be a faithful disciple, and where have I been a faithful disciple. Just use those three questions and get that little group around you because if you try to do this stuff on your own, it just, it, it's never worked. You know, you need somebody that can look objectively at your life that will be honest with you um, and hold you accountable. Um, anyway, so uh, you know, the bands, which is the small groups, the societies the big, the bands, the classes, the societies. You know, then after we had to split from the Church of England, we just became churches, and we, we and really one of the things that killed, um, I mean, we used to mandate membership in a band or a, or a society. Um, they that started fading away when Sunday school started happening. He's got a great book on the bands. Which I love Sunday school, but that kind of deep, deep spiritual work is usually not done in Sunday school classes. So Sunday school does not replace what we Methodists started out with bands, societies, and, and classes. You know, you can get the, all the bands together for a class, and then that could be a Sunday school class. But you need somewhere where somebody, you know, um, will ask you the hard questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why here, we, 20 years ago, we called them unity groups. Now we call them journey groups. I'm sure the next time, Lainey, we try to encourage people to do it. We can pick another name. I don't know what we call them. Yeah, a lot, lot of it. I mean, some people, some people like me, when I hear language from the 18th century, I salivate with joy. Other people hear language from the 18th century and they don't know what in the world we're talking about. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to come up with some names. Uh, your spiritual support group, I mean, what, whatever, we just need that. Um, I, I'd, I'd be frightened not to have that in my life. Uh, Francis Asbury was one of the one or two Methodist preachers that stayed in America during uh, the, the Revolutionary War. Because we were so British, so much a part of the Church of England, all of them went back to England. Francis stayed here, and there probably was one more that stayed here. Uh, so that when the war was over and we became our own thing, um, John Wesley sent John Wesley ordained Thomas. It looks like Coke C O K E in England. It's pronounced Cook. We pronounce it Coke here, and I'll show you in a minute where that matters. But he, John Wesley ordained. Yeah, ordained, consecrated Um, Thomas Koch as a bishop to come to America he he came to ordain Francis Asbury bishop so there would be two bishops in America to ordain Francis was smart, Francis was brilliant, Francis said I will be bishop if y'all elect me to be bishop Um, don't ever use your power if the people haven't given you authority if you haven't been rendered authority and you use your power it never ends well but anyway, French said, okay, I may be bishop. Father John wants me to be bishop along with Thomas Coke, Cook. Um, but y'all vote, maybe and they voted. They said, yeah, what well, if you better Anyway, Francis Asbury became the uh, Francis Asbury, Thomas Coke became the first two bishops. Thomas Coke left quickly. Francis Asbury created the American Methodist Church. That's why we have an Asbury room down here. His pictures hanging in it. That's who he is. Uh, he traveled the breadth of the American colonies and the early United States. We have, we have copies of letters from England. Francis Asbury was born in England, too. We have copies of letters where people, like in England, would write to Francis Asbury and they would just write, Francis Asbury, USA. Because <laughs> he was on horseback. Uh, one of the reasons I will be buried at um, Tabernacle United Methodist Church, well, several reasons I'll be buried at Tabernacle United Methodist Church in Greensboro. It's Tammy's home church. I got family there. I did a three-year internship there. um, And they gave me a cemetery plot for Christmas. Um, So I have a cemetery plot there. But the reason they knew I wanted a cemetery plot there at Tabernacle Church in Greensboro was Francis Asbury preached there in 1800. Before a church was created there, it was Camp Meeting area, and Francis Asbury preached there. Francis Asbury traveled this whole area here. Um, anyway, that's Francis Asbury. He, he, he put his mark. As a matter of fact, British Methodists do not have bishops. They have superintendents. And that was John Wesley's wish. It's Francis Asbury, we've got to think, um, who said bishop is the biblical word. But now when you say bishop in church history, there's lots of memories in Europe and Roman Catholic. I know my Baptist parents cringed every time they heard me talk about my bishop. <laughs> because there's, but Francis Asbury's is right. It's a biblical term, and it does mean superintendent. You know, so John Wesley would say if you don't like the word bishop, just call him superintendent. When I when I was a district superintendent, what that is is I'm 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 participating in the superintendency role of the bishop. That's what a district superintendent is. That's why I become. I was a part of the bishop's cabinet. Um, Anyway, so superintendent's the word they use. Superintendent or president of the conference is what they we have bishops. Francis Asbury gave us that. You see the word connection there? First is the British spelling, then you see the English spelling. From day one, we have been a connection. That's why if you've seen, for instance, if you've seen an ordination in the Methodist Church, you'd... I know some exceptions, but you should never have seen an ordination in the United Methodist Church in a local congregation. It always happens when we're together as a conference. When all the preachers, all the delegates are there, we ordain up at Lake Junaluska in this region because when you're ordained, you're not ordained to one congregation. That's why you're not ordained in a congregation. Um, When I was ordained, um, an AME Zion bishop participated in my ordination because ordination for us is ordination to the whole body of Christ. Uh, It's certainly to all the Methodists. It's not just the Western Memorial people, which is why we itinerate. Um, You know, churches just kind of look out for themselves. That's nature. You know, I I bet none of the people here woke up this morning with a burden on their heart for some church up in Asheville. We, we just focus on our church. But we, because of the way we do uh, itinerancy, the movement of preachers, the changing of preachers, that's because somebody, the bishop in the cabinet, needs to look at the big picture. And, um, you know, when the bishop sent me from Archdale, I was having a ball at Archdale. We just had a storm hit the church, do a million dollars worth of damage. We were... But the bishop in the cabinet discerned that I was needed more at First Methodist Franklin. And I dutifully yielded. That's, that's part of the connection. We're not in this by ourselves as individuals, think bands, but even as congregations, we're not in this by ourselves. The body of Christ. When I was growing up in the Baptist church, every time I heard the word church, it referred to that congregation. It was only after I left the Baptist church and was hanging out with some Catholics and Presbyterians when I heard the word church mean something other than this. You know, Sometimes it's big C, sometimes it's little c. But church is not just your one congregation. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be a solitary Christian and congregation. shouldn't be only concerned about themselves. So we've always been connected, which is why we went from the smallest denomination in 1784 when we were birthed after the Revolutionary War. We went from the smallest denomination to by the time of the Civil War, we were the biggest in the United States. Because, you know, let's say you're, you're, you've loaded your wagon and you're going to the far western part of North Carolina, before your wagon gets unloaded, there's a Methodist circuit rider there saying, let's talk about this. And we had planned a church before you built your house, if there were people there. Now, in the Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran world, you have to move, you have to settle down, you have to get some other people who want to be Lutheran, and then you have to create a church, and then you, then, then you call a preacher. Well, that's, we don't see that as a biblical model. Thessalonica didn't say, Paul, come here. Philippi didn't say to Paul, come here. Corinth didn't say to Paul, come here. Paul was sent to Corinth, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Ephesus. So we take very seriously that sent ministry. We are sent. The word apostle means one who is sent. And that's why, that's, but, I mean, there's, we do it for, for biblical theological reasons. But yeah, that's how we became the biggest denomination in America. We we had done built a Methodist church for the before the Baptists got to unload their wagon because circuit riders we 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 deployed like the military and we still do somewhat we don't deploy we don't have used to in the earliest days you were given a circuit of whatever Methodists you could find in that circuit I was always proud of the fact when I was district superintendent stationed in um, Winston Salem the name of my district was the Atkin Valley district. Because when Francis Asbury started preaching here, uh, he called all of Western North Carolina the Atkin Valley Circuit. So if he appointed you to the Atkin Valley Circuit, you had all of Western North Carolina to plant Methodist churches. But that's, that's our itinerancy, that's our connection, that's our proactive missional uh, way of doing things. Now again, I'm kind of painting the picture of the ideal Methodist um, Things break down at points. The episcopacy, that just means the office of bishop. And I've already talked about that, I think. Any episcopal church is a church that is governed by bishops. Because the biblical word, and it is in the Bible, I had to point it out to my parents who were Baptists, the word bishop is in the Bible. It's episkopoi in the Greek. Um, says so bishop when you translate it in English. But so we are governed by bishops. We are governed with conferences. You're going to hear about some of this stuff tomorrow night. We're governed by conferences. The only body that can speak, I'm talking ideal Methodism, the only body that can speak for United Methodist is the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. That's our usually, um, I'm saying this to lay a little background for tomorrow, that's usually our global meeting once every four years, um, until, we think, until the general conference after next, all of our global general conferences every four years have been in the United States. But general conference after next, the plan is for it to be outside the United States because our growth now is more there than here. Um, general conference is a, we're a republican form of government, that's how we're connected. So like when, um, when annual conference meets, annual conference is our, is our region here in West North Carolina. We meet at Lake General Lusso because it happens to be here. Um, in this church, you get to send four lay delegates to, to, to annual conference here locally, regionally. You get to send four. Do you know why you send four? Four, four, you have four? You have four appointed clergy. So we have to have one laity for every clergy to keep us straight. We started that in 1939. So you have, George has been a delegate, you've been a delegate. Who's been delegates to annual conference? Anybody else? There's no delegate. Anyway, so it's, it's even clergy and laity. Now our general conference is the same way. It's half clergy, half laity from around the world. And, you, you, and so every conference gets deleg- delegates to general conference based on their membership. We're a large annual conference here in West North Carolina. Because we, had, we, had, we literally had Methodist Episcopal Church South. We had Methodist Protestant. I told you about them being around here. That was a group that didn't like bishops. And after the Civil War, we even had churches being planted here for Africans or slaves, ex-slaves, by the Methodist Episcopal Church from up north. They came down. So we had all three branches, which is why this church was Methodist Episcopal. First Methodist was Methodist Protestant. That's why if you go downtown Greensboro, you've got West Market right here. And I've been told, I don't know that I believe this, I've been told that if the sun's just right, the, the, the shadow of West Market can fall on Grace, United Methodist. Grace was the old MP. West Market was the old ME. But anyway, we're, we're a big annual conference here because we, we had various... Expressions of Methodism. So, we, being a large annual conference, just to kind of give you a sense of General Conference, we get to elect twelve clergy to go to General Conference, and we get to elect twelve laity to go to General Conference. Um, I, I was elected the last two General Conferences. Uh, it's not easy to get elected. It's it's like what you it's like um, I don't know where I stand. You, you ballot and you ballot and you ballot and you ballot and you ballot. When somebody gets over fifty percent of the vote. They're elected, and you do that till you elect. You actually have to elect 12 to general conference, 12 to jurisdictional conference, on both sides of the aisle, laity and clergy. So um, one thing, I, but I will say this, um, as I'm finishing up real quick, a Methodist polity. Um, I was elected to general conference twice. I refused adamantly to run for general conference. Uh, Laity, particularly, when they run for general conference, they will put out biographies. They will tell you what they believe, what they stand for. Uh, Clergy don't do that, because we still have a little semblance of um, Christianity, I guess. You know, we we don't politic to get elected. So running for um, general conference was nothing I was ever interested in, but I was elected twice. Um, Which also, uh, since we're talking polity, this annual conference is the delegations from the annual conference that goes to jurisdictional conference. That's where bishops are elected, in jurisdictional conference. Um, Twice this delegation wanted me to consider running for bishop, and I really had no desire for that for two reasons. It is very much a running for bishop. I mean, you go around, you do your stump speeches. Nothing about that attracted me. And then when a bishop is elected in the southeast, the southeast jurisdictions of the old confederacy elects bishops. We, we make our bishops itinerate. So if I were to be elected bishop here, guess what conference I cannot serve, at least the first four years, this one. So one, I'm not going to run. That's just not my personality. Number two... Getting elected bishop being sent to Mississippi has no attraction to me, <laughs> or Alabama. I really can't think if you, North Carolina or maybe Northern Virginia. I, mean, I really, honestly, can't think of anywhere else I'd rather live. But we make our bishops itinerate, just like we make our, our pastors itinerate. So there's your quick intro to some and all those terms, all that way of doing things comes out of our earliest days with John Wesley. Um, there are many, many days. I agree with Bishop Ken Goodson. Some of you may know Bishop Ken Goodson. He pastored First Methodist here years ago. In my preaching Bible, stop me one Sunday, in my preaching Bible, i got a photograph of Ken Goodson. From the 1950s, he's literally drinking an orange crush, eating fried chicken. So so stereotypical. Bishop Ken Goodson was an amazing, amazing man. By the time I went to the Vinci school, he had... Um, he had retired from the Episcopacy and was bishop in residence at Duke Divinity School. An amazing man. He's deceased now. He and Martha both. He was our grandfather at Divinity School. He was the one who taught us about the real world at Duke Divinity School. He was elected bishop in 1964. Now think about this a second. He was elected bishop in 1964 out of West North Carolina. He was pastoring centenary. He was elected bishop in 1964, and he was sent 64 sent to Alabama. I remember him in seminary saying to us, uh, uh, boys, we were all boys back in that time, most of us anyway. Boys, when I was sent to Alabama in 1964, they didn't, they didn't believe in segregation. They still believed in slavery. That's what he said to, me and to us. Anyway, Ken Goodson um, was, was, was an amazing, amazing bishop. Um, and he always told us, back in his day, if you ran for bishop, you had to not act like you were running for bishop. it's overt now, very overt now. I mean, it is. Because I I remember being a delegate to jurisdictional conference, listening to the stump speeches. Because all we do at jurisdiction, we stay put and they all have to cycle through and tell us what they want to tell us. And, And we kind of choose on that decision. But yeah, running for anything has no allure for me. And being moved to somewhere else in the jurisdiction has no allure for me. So twice they've come to me. Um, the last, last two general conferences, they've come to me asking if I'd be considered, um, because what happens your delegation kind of runs you, but then you do all the work and have to do all the speeches. And, but they, 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 they sponsor you, they promote, they endorse you, and they get other delegations from other conferences to endorse you. Um, that's where our bishops come from. So so, so it's very much a Republican form of government from general conference. So general conference, the numbers you can tell are not real large. When we go to annual conference, there's 2,500 of us in Western North Carolina. But for the whole global gathering, 864. Because like I said, we're a large conference. We get 12 clergy, 12 laity. But that's how you make decisions. You know, just like you elect 100 senators. 100 senators, yeah. Gosh, my brain, I'm so tired. Uh, just like you elect your people to Congress. You don't run to Congress every time there's something to be voted on. You elect somebody there to go take care of it. We are a Republican. You elect a church council to do the matters of the local church. We don't do, you know, there are, there are churches who are governed by congregations, who have congregational votes for everything. There is rare, but it happens when there are necessary congregational votes. In a United Methodist congregation, again, this sort of leads me toward tomorrow night, um, and we'll talk about some of that stuff. Any quick question? I know I've talked too much, but this is like a seminary, wor- a seminary semester worth of stuff that you're getting in four days. You're not gonna Any quick question? Before I let you go out here, remember to look at Mr. West's letter over here behind glass. Uh, Thank you. Go in peace. So tomorrow we we get to experience Methodist controversy. Sure. Oh, okay. That's what I said. That's what we both were the 17th century. They were born in the 17th century. That's were That's why. the the we figure out how we're just the local church, evangelical. They have to use the with the I can use those resources. They have to. Well, thank you, really, our local church. Yes. Look, I've you. i See you later. that was like i I take a sip of water out of fire hose. I but... <laughs>